want to uh, begin here this morning by inviting you to jump in an imaginary time, mach- time machine uh, back to 1986. Some of you weren't alive. Uh, I was four years old, and I had a hero by the name of Prince Adam, otherwise known as He-Man. Y'all know who He-Man is? The master of the universe? He-Man was a... Uh, was a guy that I, I aspired to be as a four-year-old, uh, living actually down in St. Pete. Uh, my mom and I pretty much, on a regular basis, would, would uh, act out uh, the battle between He-Man and Skeletor. <laughs> it's not meant to be an insult, Mother. Just the reality of an uh, only child trying to uh, fulfill the fantasy of being He-Man. It was at that young age uh, that I just became like fascinated with, with uh, you know, the, the story of He-Man trying to protect his, the kingdom of Eternia. Uh, I'm not going to b- uh, bore you with the details, but uh, He-Man was bound to protecting the castle of Grayskull with his uh, battle cat uh, that would magically uh, gain powers along with He-Man when he would raise the sword and so on it goes. What's interesting about He-Man or, or really any story about a kingdom and, and its kings and battles, there's, there's something innate about those stories that, that fascinate us, don't they? They, they? they intrigue our imagination. They, we often find ourselves like envisioning what it would look like to be in that era. I mean, if you think about it, 90 minutes from here, there's a magical kingdom uh, that attracts thousands and thousands of people to, uh, to accrue millions and millions of dollars uh, that we uh, somehow still find fascinating year after year to bring our family, to bring our kids. There is something unique about the concept of a kingdom and a king and a people. I believe that's the case not by accident. I believe that's the case because when you consider the story of Scripture, the one that God himself has written, it's about a kingdom. It's about a king. It's about a people and a place. And I think the more we not just merely understand this story conceptually, but see how God has made a way for us to be a part of this story, not just the more we're going to fall in love with the concept, but I think the more we're going to understand our purposes here on this earth. So if you're here with us last week, we opened up to Matthew chapter 6 and walked through verses 9 through 13 and discussed what's commonly known, familiar, familiarly known as the Lord's Prayer. And he makes a very dynamic and important request for us to model, and that is the re- that this request from Jesus is that the kingdom of God would be done, his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what we're doing is we're simply exploring this concept of what it would be like for the will of God to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. What's important about this is before we can maybe start to like unpack the practical aspects of that kingdom reality, I think it's so integral to our study to understand what are the concepts or the contents of the kingdom? Like specifically to start off, what does God's word say about the kingdom of God? I want to mention just a couple verses here to get us started, just to give you a picture maybe of this kingdom idea and that this is not one I'm just, uh, you know, interposing here upon you. It says in Genesis 49 verse 10, Uh, This is the promise made from Jacob to his children. It says, The scepter, the ruling staff, 
shall not depart from Judah, the son of Jacob, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. It says, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, when you fast forward a few hundred years, you find another promise regarding a kingdom from God to his people, specifically to David. And it says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So now as you start tracing these dots, and again, we're, we're, we're broad brushing here, but the point is God has a very specific purpose to establish a kingdom upon this earth for his glory, for the reign of his people. When you fast forward into Mark chapter 1, all of a sudden there's a new kingdom concept brought right into the face of this earth. And that's from Jesus himself. And it says in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So now you're confronted with a very real dynamic. That this isn't just a promise, that the kingdom of God now has a presence on the earth. And this is what Jesus tells these people in light of this. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. And then the end of the story, the end of this book, draws us once again to this kingdom reality. In Revelation 21, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. It says, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, important note there, the throne where the king sits, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated, once again, on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Why is this so significant? Because the more you start to understand and see these kingdom concepts in Scripture, it's going to awaken, I believe, not just a greater understanding and appreciation for the story, but to give you a clear picture or maybe even a clearer picture of what God is doing in you and for you and through you. Specifically, God's kingdom purpose is that his kingdom would advance. That there would be an earth filled with worshipers bringing glory to God, and those people would be the ones who are redeemed and bought by Jesus Christ himself. So the amazing part about this story found here throughout the pages of scripture, it's not one that's merely a fantasy. It's not one that is, is a story designed for someone else. It's a story from God for you and me that we find our purpose in, that we find our place in, because if you are a follower of Jesus who's experienced the forgiveness of God, you are someone who belongs in this kingdom. 
And to me, this is awesome because now all of a sudden, as we start to comb through the pages of Scripture, the stories of Scripture, these aren't just merely like stories from long ago that are good moral things for us. We are learning how God is building a people for his glory, and you and I get to be a part of it. So it, it gives us joy. It gives us purpose. And I believe that as we start to explore how God has a purpose for his people, it's going to change how we live right now. It's going to change what we seek for, what we long for, what we have love for. And specifically today, we're going to identify three reasons from Scripture why God's people possess a purpose in his kingdom. Three reasons that I think as we unpack this morning are going to provide for you not just great joy, not just deeper knowledge, but it's going to cement in your heart a greater understanding of why you are here and what you are here to do. Three reasons why God's people possess a purpose in his kingdom. Father, we're so thankful that you've loved us, that you've given us Jesus, that you've given us an opportunity, Lord, to know you, to be a part of this eternal purpose that you've created. And Lord, I pray this morning that our hearts would long to be closer to you, to experience in a deeper more meaningful way, what you have called us to, what you have prepared for us now. Lord, we ask that you would bless your word, that we would not just be hearers, but doers. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We see the first reason why God's people possess a purpose in his kingdom, because we see very clearly from Scripture that we are called. Number one, that we are called. You see, God's relationship to his people begins when he calls us out. In other words, God wants us. God wants you. And from the very initial story of Scripture in Genesis, we find that God's prerogative for his people is that he calls them out by name for his purposes. I want to bring you to, uh, excuse me, to the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. If you have your scriptures, turn there to Genesis 12, or if, if not, we have it on the screen behind me. In Genesis 12, we are introduced to a man named Abram who becomes Abraham. This story is not unfamiliar to our church, but it may be at least maybe a little, uh, maybe not familiar to you today. So I want to just quickly show you how God initiates this chosen relationship with his people. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, it says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, he's picking out this man, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that what? I will show you. Who's taking initiative here, God or Abram? God. He says, and I will what? I will make of you a great nation and I I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. What does verse three once again remind us? God says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So from the very initial founding of the story of scripture where God starts to begin his purposes here on this earth, we see the beginning of a relationship with God and man that uniquely God initiates. 
There's nothing that we find from Abram that he has done or that makes him uniquely worthy outside the fact that God wants Abram. And he wants Abram so much that he creates this plan that the seed of Abram would be so blessed that literally he says that all the families of the earth will be blessed because of your seed. So we're finding that God has has a very intimate and direct connection with his people. But as you fast forward to Matthew chapter 4, and now when Jesus is here on this earth, we find there's not that much difference from how God initiates his relationship with his people. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, we find this of Jesus. It says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus says to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, I know this is something that we're, we're under, like we, we probably have heard this before, or we're familiar with the story of Jesus calling his disciples, but I want to remind you of the purposes here. Who is initiating the relationship? Are the disciples saying, Jesus, I want to follow you? Is that what's happening? No. Jesus is looking at these men fishermen, common men, and he's saying, hey, I want you. I want you to follow me. And I love their response in verse 20. What do they do? It says immediately what? They drop their nets and they follow Jesus. In verse 21, it says, and going on from there, Jesus saw two more brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And what does Jesus do? He calls to them. He says, I want you. I want you to follow me. And what is their response? Immediately they left the boat and their father had followed him. So from the very first book of scripture in Genesis, now here to Matthew, we're seeing a familiar theme. And that is those who are followers of God, those who are God's people, are those who God himself calls out. And here's what's crazy. That same pattern is continuing today. Now, I realize that may sound a little bit strange because the two examples we've seen here are literally God himself, right? Talking to Abram, Jesus calling his disciples. How is God still calling his people out today? Well, in Matthew chapter 28, we see God calling out Christians. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now think about this. Jesus is posing himself to his disciples as the one who possesses all authority. Because of his death, burial, and resurrection, we find this newfound authority that Jesus is is at least portraying to his disciples. Not new for Jesus, but at least new for his disciples in in this context. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And what does Jesus tell them to do in verse 19? He says what? He says, go. Based on the authority of Jesus, he tells these disciples to go. And to do what? He says, go and make disciples. 
What we find even further in 2 Corinthians 5 that Paul says we are ambassadors and we are literally the message of God's reconciliation. Why is this significant? Because if you are a follower of God, if you have confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've been commissioned by God himself to be a mouthpiece for God for the salvation of others. Like literally God has sent you with his authority to be his voice, to be one who points people to him. God continues to call people to himself, not based on their initiation, but his. Look what 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. Listen to what Paul says. says, I planted, Apollos watered, but what? God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Okay, I think, I think it'd be important for us to kind of just hit the pause button because this is a lot of knowledge, things that maybe you already know or maybe things that are confirming a little bit about what you thought God was doing. But I think there's some direct application of this that we can't miss. There is such a unique joy, isn't there, in being wanted. Like just, like think about the joy that you experience when someone says, I want you. When I was in high school, uh, I often played pickup basketball, uh, whether it would be, you know, with some friends at a park or in, in, our, in our high school gym or, you know, wherever, we, we would often play pickup basketball. And sometimes we would shoot for teams where basically you'd line up and, and you'd shoot and the first 10 to make it would be on a team. But there'd be other times when it would be like captain's choice. You know what captain's choice is? Where basically you have two people and they pick who's on their team. Most of the time, we had a little more than 10 that would be there. So there was always this like awkward tension when it was captain's choice of who was going to get picked. And when you would kind of stand there, like the kind of the two captains would be like near the basket, and there's the group of the people standing out there, and you're just thinking, you know, like, please pick me, please pick me, please pick me. I want to play ball. Please pick me. And you're thinking this in your head, and, and, and you're thinking, well, I think I'm pretty good. And you start to have like this self-analysis going on in this short window of time. And then when that guy calls your name, it's like, ah, oh, there's this joy. Now, I realize that's so trite, right? I mean, it's just pick up basketball. But let's be honest. When we get picked, when someone demonstrates that they want us, isn't there joy in that? Like, isn't there, isn't there a sweet satisfaction of knowing that we are wanted? Even like in the silliest basic things. Even sometimes when your name just gets randomly called, there's something special about being chosen. I've got good news for you. God wants you. Like, just, just think about this. God is building a kingdom. He is a king. And that kingdom involves people that he wants. And God has a will that no one would perish, but that all would come to repentance and belief, and that would be a part of his kingdom. And God here this morning is inviting you, if you have never experienced the forgiveness of Jesus, to know that you have been called by God. He wants you. He loves you. 
He's made a way for you. He is the king who has not despised you. He is the king who has sent his son to make a way for you to be a part of his kingdom. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I start to consider that type of love and that type of, that type of calling, like to look at me despite of me, in light of my sin, and so say, I want you. Matter of fact, I want you so much, I'm going to give everything. I'm going to give my son to die for you. That's a type of love that cannot be rivaled. And God continues to demonstrate that love to us every single day. So we know that we have a purpose in the kingdom because God has called us, in, God has called us into it. We didn't accidentally stumble into God's kingdom. We weren't the ones knocking on his door. He said, I want you. I want you. I want you. And he continues to affirm that to us each day. But number two, we find that we have a purpose in God's kingdom, not just because we're called, but because we're consecrated. Now, this is, this is a word that maybe we don't use too often, so I think it would be helpful for me to define what I mean by consecration. Because there's really two, two purposes, or maybe, or maybe two sides to the coin here of consecration. So consecration, it means to make or declare as sacred. And I want to emphasize this idea of making. It, it, there's a creation point of it, suggesting that at one point, the thing that was made, that was consecrated, was not, was not consecrated itself. Does that make sense? So like God has to initiate this consecration because we are in need of it. Secondly, this, the second point of that, it's not just a making, it's a devoting. So when we talk about the fact that we're consecrated is that God initiates our consecration, like we were in a place where we needed it, and then once we are consecrated, there's a purpose involved to it. Let me, let me maybe illustrate this to help understand what I mean by this. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, I played soccer for about uh, probably like all the way from middle school through high school, and every single um, preseason uh, like when you're when those you know, those early August practices, um, if you've never played soccer, your gear just rots. So like when you play soccer, you have um, you have you you wear these cleats, but then you wear these shin guards and then socks over it. And in Michigan, in like early August, it was super humid, and you're just so sweaty. And and with the grass and the sweat, those shin guards just like stank. I mean, they were they were some of like the the grossest smelling uh, you know things I've, I've ever encountered. And so I lived uh, in walking distance from my high school, and I remember like in those in those early August days after preseason soccer, I would come home, and and whether or not my mom was there, I was confronted by her in spirit with the thought of, do not bring any of this nasty stuff in the house, right? So there had to be this moment where I was brought to this hard reality that in my condition, with this nasty soccer gear on, I was unable to enter into the home. So something needed to happen for me to be able to enter and also remain in the home. What needed to happen? had to be removed. The, the cleats, the, the socks, the, the, the gear, it had to, be, had to be set outside. Now, I can't imagine for those that played football growing up what, what stink came from your football gear, but all I know is that my mom would not tolerate that filth in the house. And it wasn't complete for me just to take off that gear outside. I had to come in and, and clean up. There was, 
there was not going to be a way in the Thompson household for, for me to remain a part of that home unless I was sufficiently cleansed from the nastiness of preseason soccer. The beauty of this is that my mom always made a way for that to happen. She always had soap and shampoo. We always had running water. There was always a bathroom to clean up in. You see, when I came home, for me to enter into that home, there had to be a way for me to be cleansed. And what we find in Scripture is that God makes a way for us to be his people, meaning we need him to make us holy. We need him to cleanse us. We need him to consecrate us. We can't enter into God's kingdom unless he has consecrated us. And the beauty of that consecration is that once we also enter into this new kingdom, this new reality, we also find that God is consecrating us for a purpose. So what we see here is that we are longing to be in the kingdom. We are standing outside unable to come in. We need the consecration of God to enable us to bring us into that, that newfound righteousness. But when we experience that consecration along with it, there's a purpose that's involved. Let me demonstrate this from Scripture to maybe further uh, paint this picture for you. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7, in verse 6, we find God declaring to the nation of Israel, For you are a people, and notice what he says here, holy to the Lord. This is the idea of consecration. It has this set-apartness. They're, they're, they're taken by God and, and, made, and, and made new, but it's made new for a purpose as well. It says, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of this earth. And it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He goes on to say, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall, there, you shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. So what we find in, in Deuteronomy 7 is that God has called out his people. He chose them. He has consecrated them. He has made them holy. And because of that consecration, he has a purpose for them. He wants them to live in obedience to him. You say, why? Because he has made them his people. They belong to him. It was his initiation, his work, his hand reaching out to redeem them that caused these people to belong to him. And this doesn't change with you and me. Because we find in 1 Peter chapter 2 that God's people also experience this same consecration. Peter says, but you are a what? A chosen race. And I love this next description. You are a what? A royal priesthood. A holy nation. And are you ready for this? I want you to read it with me. A people for his own possession. 
God has not just called you out. He has consecrated you. And why is that significant? Because if God does not initiate this act of consecration, of making you holy, of setting you apart, your purposes in this life and the life to come are not. Like, if God doesn't reach out and make his people and create in them a righteousness and cleanse them of their sin and make them holy for his own possession, we have no hope. We have no purpose. Because look what Peter says, we are this people that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are what? You are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now what? You have received mercy. You see, Jesus has made a way for us to experience this, this consecration, this holiness. In Titus chapter 2, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And it says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. When we consider what God is doing in this story of a kingdom, God has looked at people who are sinners, who are rebellious, who want their own ways, and despite of that, he looks at us and he says, I want you. I'm not just going to pick you out of a crowd. I'm going to consecrate you. I'm going to bring you in. And I'm going to bring you in because I have a purpose for you. I'm going to make you holy. I'm going to give you the spirit. I'm going to equip you and enable you for what I have called you here to do on this earth. And we see that in this final point, the third reason why we know that we have a purpose from God, because we find that we are commissioned. We're called out, we're consecrated, but we're also commissioned. Do you remember the, the first job that you ever had, like, or maybe the first important job? Can you recall back to maybe as an as a adolescent or maybe like right out of college, like your first important job? I remember um, summer after I graduated high school, uh, I, was, I was looking for really any type of work. And uh, I remember I had gone through this um, like uh, placement agency and uh, they had got me this job in a factory, and, and I found out like on a, on a, on a Friday, that, that coming Monday, I graduated on a Friday, I found out that Friday that on Monday, I was going to have to show up for this first job. I had to show up at 4 a.m. I was like, oh man, this is miserable. But I didn't know, I, I literally didn't know anything about it. I just knew, I just, I, I had to map quest, y'all know what map quest is, that, that, that dates me, but I had to map quest where it was, and, uh, and I had to show up at 4 a.m. So I show up at 4 a.m., and um, it's this factory, probably about 20 minutes uh, from where I lived. And, uh, like, no one's there. And so I pull up, and it's, I mean, obviously super early in the morning. And, and I have, like, those first day kind of jitters, you know what I'm talking about, like that. Like, I'm, I'm excited. I'm a little bit nervous. Like, what am I going to expect here? What's going what's gonna to happen? So probably about, I don't know, um, 10, 15 minutes after getting there, uh, I, was, I was standing outside my car. I hear, like, the, the loudest, like, heavy metal music just blaring. I mean, it's just, like, loud. 
And I'm like, where's that coming from? And again, everything is heightened to me because I'm nervous. I hear this music playing, and then all of a sudden, around the, I, can, I can still envision it like it was yesterday, around the corner comes this big old dude on this Harley, this big motorcycle, and, and this you know, heavy metal music is blaring. And if you knew my background, like all of that intimidated me. I was just like, what, what is going on? So I'm just like, you know, like transfixed on this guy watching him, like, who is this dude? And he pulls up, and he gets off his bike, and I'm just like, oh, man, you know, I, I hope I have nothing to do with this guy. So about another 10 minutes go by, and then someone comes out and greets me, and, and uh, it's kind of like the, the new, like the HR person brings me in. So about 5 in the morning now, after being there about an hour, uh, I, I kind of, I'm welcomed in, I'm shown around, and then I'm introduced to, like, the boss of the plant. And you can probably guess who it is. It's, it's Biker Man. I, I remember his name, but it was this dude that was just so like, intimidating. I remember him looking at me, and he's kind of like, he's like, how old are you? And I wasn't, I wasn't even 18. I was like, 17. And, you know, he's just like, all right, here's what you're going to do for me. And he, like, he lists out two or three things, and it was like I hung on every single word that that man said. Because I was, I was like, in, you know, probably in a healthy and unhealthy way, like fearful of him. So like when he was telling me what to do, I mean, I was like, I was, you know, I didn't have a pen and paper, but I was making sure I was writing it down. I was not going to forget because what this man said to me was important. When we look at the story of Scripture and understand that we are a people called by God, consecrated by God, this king that we now belong to his kingdom, like you would think we, take, we would take what he says seriously, right? Like when God says to us, here's my plans for you or here's what I want from you. Like I think if I, you know, were to be as responsive to biker man <laughs> as, I, as I would be to God, you know, it, what, what would life look like? When we start to look at the story of scripture God has not left his people without a purpose. God has commissioned us as his consecrated and called people to fulfill his purposes on this earth. Say, so how do I know? Well, I want to bring you back to a very dynamic example. And then fast forward to the New Testament as well, just to kind of put a bow on this. In the book of Joshua, we come to a very significant point in the story of Scripture. Because if you're understanding what's happening from the very first pages of Genesis, God is creating this people for himself. He makes promises to Abram and this, this family of Israel that he intends to fulfill. And as a king, he's looking for a people to occupy a place so that way they would give glory to the king and the kingdom forever. And what we find as you walk through the early pages of Scripture that God is fulfilling this through the Exodus, through Moses, and now we are on the cusp of the promised land. When we look at Joshua here, we're understanding that God has brought his people through the wilderness for 40 years, and now the promised land is in view. Unfortunately, Moses is not able to lead the people in, but God has called Joshua out to do this. So Joshua here receives a charge from God himself. And follow along with me here in Joshua 1. It says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them. 
Why is that significant, first of all? What is a king without a people and a place, right? If we're talking about a kingdom, it involves what? A king, a people, and a place. We're seeing this, this, this being fulfilled and, and being described here early in Scripture. He says, Into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. What we find here is this, is this promise from God to his people that they are going to have a place that he has prepared for them. Now we fast forward to the end of Joshua and we find this, we find this charge from Joshua to the people that Joshua has received from the Lord. And this is a very familiar passage. Joshua says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. He says, Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, what does Joshua say? We'll serve the Lord. Now, I, what's crazy about this, notice how the people respond. Then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Like when you understand what God has done for you, the nation of Israel saw God deliver them. We've seen the forgiveness and the redemption from our sins. They say, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. And who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went. And among all the peoples through whom we passed. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Like, this is a natural and expected response, right? Like, they're considering what God has done. They have their leader, Joshua, in front of them. They're saying, all right, you're God's people. You've been delivered. It's time to fulfill these plans God has for you. And look how they respond. They're like, we're in it. We're going to follow God. We're not going to turn away. This is what I find so fascinating about this passage. Joshua says to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. <laughs> For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive you your transgressions or your sins. You say, man, that seems harsh. Joshua was there in the wilderness. Joshua was walking with his people and they were stubborn and they would pursue after other gods. But Joshua says the promise from the Lord, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And look at the people's response. What do they say? No, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people in verse 22, he says, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And notice this response here. It says, We are witnesses. What I find fascinating about this is that the people of God, here I believe in a, an obviously a judicial sense, but also, I think, in a declarative sense as well, they are saying we are giving testimony, A, to what God has done, but also B, to our commitment to follow him. And Joshua says, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. See, that's the function of witnesses, isn't it? They are witnessing what God has done, 
and they are witnessing to others who this God is. Why is this so significant? Because we find this concept of being a witness, one that is not just bound to the testimony of the Israelites, but one that is given to the church. Because in Acts chapter 1, we find Jesus confronting the church one last time with this promise. And it says, so in Acts chapter 1, it says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time do what? Restore the kingdom to Israel. They're still concerned about the kingdom. And what's crazy, we were just in Joshua where God was telling through Joshua to these people, here's how the kingdom will be established. It doesn't happen because of their sin, because of their disobedience. And this is what Jesus says to them. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be what? My witnesses. God has an intention for his people to declare to those around them who God is and what he has done. You see, the reason, I believe, that it was a failure in the nation of Israel is because they were without the Spirit of God giving them what they need to live obediently. And I say failure lightly because it was all a part of God's plan. It was a part of God's plan to show his people their need for him. However, the mission has not changed. The mission is that God wants his people to live as his witnesses of what he has done and of what he still can do. So I want us just to to come away from all this assessing of of this this story here in knowledge. And I want to draw away with three reflections. Because I don't want us to miss the point of all this. Because so far, this is cool. Like, it's awesome to see the congruity and, and, and the consistency of God's story in Scripture. I think it's very helpful, obviously, to know that there is a theme. That is a theme of kingdom and that we are his people. But when we really draw away and understand that we have been called and consecrated and commissioned, this is what I think it suggests to us that we can leave today with, with encouragement and satisfaction and fulfillment. The first thing that we've mentioned is that God wants you. Now, this is significant because we have to understand that despite the fact that we've been made in God's image, despite the fact that we possess talents and gifts, here's the unfortunate and, and, and really you know, horrible reality. We have sin. And that sin makes us, makes the image in which God made us in marred. It's been, it's been affected. When you consider the story of Scripture, you find this perfect creation in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3, but what happens? There's sin. And what does God have to do? He has to, he has to bring separation. He has to say, you who were holy are no longer holy. There's a separation there, and yet God still declares his love and how he wants us. Now, I don't know what difficulties or circumstantial, you know, trials you're experiencing, but I do know this. When you experience a persistent, ongoing feeling of either feeling unloved or unwanted, it can destroy you. Like, if you come here today feeling unwanted or unloved, 
because of rejection, because of failure, because of hurt, I want to encourage you this morning that God wants you. And it's not just that he's like, oh, that'd be nice to have that person on my team. No, he's gone to great lengths. He's gone to great lengths to make sure you can belong to him. Because it's not just that God wants you, God has made a way for you. You see, God wanted you so much that he sent his own son to, to die in your place, to be your substitute. And it, it, far be it from us to look at this, this amazing story of God's kingdom, but to, to miss out on this point. If it wasn't for the prince of that king coming into this land to give of his life for this broken and sinful people, there would be no joy. There would be no happy ending. However, because of Jesus coming to this earth, it's not just that God would call you. He has made a way for you to be consecrated. He has made a way for you to experience his holiness and his righteousness so that you who were far from God because of your sin no longer have to experience that distance. You can experience all the joys and benefits of being a part of God's people. God wants you, he's made a way for you, and he's given a purpose to you. When we often consider the will of God in our life, like, and, I, and I know we, we ask, like, what's God's will often? And we usually have thoughts of future vocation, future relationships, future occupations. Like, we, we often think about what's God's will for my future. Well, there's good news. God has a will for your future. God has a purpose for you. He has commissioned you to be his image, his glory-bearing image upon this earth. And why is that so significant? Because you've been designed and created and gifted by God to fulfill God's purposes where you live and work and play, meaning you're not here on accident. You don't lack purpose. You don't lack value. God has gifted you and created you and made you exactly the way he wants you to be to fulfill his purposes on the earth. So if you've ever wondered, why am I here or do I even belong here? Do I even have purpose here? Yes. And that purpose is given from God. Like when we consider that the God who made all things would choose to give his life for us so that we could have purpose and value, not just for our short time here on earth, but for all eternity. Like we can walk out of this building today knowing that we have a joy and a satisfaction that is lasting, not because of what we've done, but because of what God has done in our behalf. It's like when you consider being like a, like a part of the people of God, there ought to be like this swelling joy in you, this confidence, this, this expectation that you are not here on accident, that God has intentionally given you a purpose to use your physical giftings, your spirit-enabled giftings to bear the glory of God where you live and work and play. See, in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, there's this, there's this prophetic promise that the glory of the Lord would fill the earth. And I find it fascinating that we, as image-bearing, glory-bearing people, have the opportunity to, in many ways, fulfill that prophetic promise. You see, when you live obediently as the people of God, 
who've been commissioned and consecrated and called, when you live that out in your home, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your, in your, in your classes, people are seeing something that is eternal in you. People are seeing that you are distinct because God has called you and consecrated you and commissioned you. And the problem is when we don't live in these realities that God wants us, that he's made a way for us and has given a purpose to us, we're not bearing his glory. We're bearing our own. And when we step back and see this big picture that God has called us to be his people, he set us apart, and he's also commissioned us, life begins to take a whole new purpose, doesn't it? Or maybe better yet, your life is filled with purpose that you've never experienced before. So as we conclude today, I, I want to ask you a couple questions. How, how does this speak to you this morning? When you consider these purposes of God, that he has a people who possess a heavenly purpose in their earthly reality, do you find encouragement from this? Or do you find conviction? Because regardless, I want to point you to the gospel this morning and have you understand that you can walk out of this room here this morning with the hope and the peace that you are exactly who God wants you to be you are exactly what God wants you to be, and you have a future that God has prepared for you all because of the good news of Jesus Christ. This morning, you can have that type of hope. This morning, you can have that type of joy. It's available to you because you have Jesus Christ, the good news of his salvation, and the opportunity to experience the joy of being the people of God.